Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. It's been a while since we've talked about plants, especially plant domestication and modern breeding. And that's really something that is very close to me, both as a profession and as a hobby and the folks I work with, obviously. Uh, we're at one of the big breeding institutions in the U.S., uh, maybe the world. But plant breeding and domestication is so important because it's how we get our improved crops. And we have to realize that everything that we enjoy in terms of fruits and vegetables came from some wild antecedent that maybe didn't have the best product qualities. But out there in the woods through most of North America, there's a tree that grows that most people don't think about very often. And, and most people, I would say, never even heard of. This is the pawpaw. And today we're going to talk with Adam D'Angelo. He's uh, the director of Project Pawpaw. Are you the, really the director? What's your title? Director sounds great, Kevin. I think I'm everything <laughs> right now. <laughs> All right. So you're the director, the uh, technical assistants, and the uh, major. Yeah. So Adam uh, sent me an email a few weeks ago to talk about uh, what he's up to with Pawpaws. And I just thought this would be a great way to familiarize the general audience with what this thing is and maybe get you excited about trying one in the near future. So welcome aboard, Adam. Thank you so much, Kevin. I actually, before we started, I wanted to say, I might be one of the first listeners here that's actually gotten to be on the podcast because I was listening to Talking Biotech podcast before I even became a plant breeder. I used to listen back when I was a high schooler interested in agriculture, and I continued listening all the way through undergrad and grad school. And now as in my early stages of my career, I'm just so thrilled to finally get to be on here and talking with you and your listeners. That's super cool. So, you, so you're actually now you're part of the tapestry, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's really great. I, I think that's really cool. So I, I think pawpaws are really neat. And I live in an area of diversity within the genus. Um, Northern Florida has a dozen different kinds of from from that are relatives of the fruiting pawpaw um, or the major fruit that people know. But can you tell me more about what a pawpaw is and maybe a little bit about its range? Sure. So when we talk about pawpaw, Today, we're going to be talking about the North American pawpaw, Asimina triloba. Sorry to you folks in South America or uh, the rest of the world that are referring to the papaya as pawpaw. But here in North America, our pawpaw is a large climacteric fruit. It makes a fruit that tastes like banana and mango and has the texture of a ripe avocado. And it grows all throughout the East Coast. Now, I've never gotten to eat one, but I have here that it is the best fruit that exists. I think that's a difficult title to assume, but I know there's a lot of people who would agree with you. Uh, it is, it's creamy and delicious. It's like a ready-made dessert. A lot of fruits need to be made into a dessert, but a pawpaw is something that's just ready to be enjoyed, uh, and it has to be enjoyed quickly because they're almost ephemeral. They don't last very long, which is probably why I've never had one, Kevin. Yeah, well, it's kind of like persimmons. We were in persimmon season right now down here in Florida, and we're picking them, you know, once a week for farmers market. And uh, they they are good on Friday, they're good on Saturday, Sunday they're mush. 
But that's why you can't buy them in stores and why farmers markets are so important because you can come get something you can't buy in a grocery store. But anyway, that's my plug for us. <laughs> but but also for pawpaws, because these are it's like a, so the fruit itself, if you had to describe it, almost looks like a big kidney. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a large fruit. Yeah, it's about the size of an avocado or a small mango. Inside of it is a yellow or light white flesh with large black seeds are about the size of almonds. Uh, there's maybe 10 seeds inside of the fruit and the flesh is nice and soft. A ripe, a ripe pawpaw is just like a ripe avocado. You can scoop it out with a spoon. Yeah. Real custardy. And it, it, like the, and when I see pictures of it, just for, to give people kind of a visual idea of what this thing looks like, if you cut one in half the long way, it kind of looks like a mitochondrian. Like, right? Like a cross-section of a mitochondria. Yeah, That's like always that. pops to mind when I see that. So um, when you're talking about the diversity that's there in terms of flavors and aromas, what's been done so far in terms of breeding and also just what's naturally out in the, out in the woods? So one of the beautiful things is that nature has been doing a lot of breeding for us. These are plants that are related to cherry moya, soursop, custard apple, and these are just the branch of the family that got stuck in North America when the continents divided. And these were the ones that could adapt to be cold, hardy, and uh, live in the temperate, deciduous northern forests. When I think about fruits that are on the cusp of big explosive improvement, you can think about tree fruits that people have ignored because they take so long to breed. You know, just getting one generation may take years and a good tree fruit breeder may have, you know, four or five generations in their career. And there's things like persimmons, there's things, oh, so many different tree fruits which are on the cusp of, of, of just coming up with new varieties. Why would you pick pawpaw? That's a great point, Kevin. And there's a few point, few reasons why we're emphasizing uh, pawpaws here. First of all, they taste great already. We don't have to fight an uphill battle to make it edible. It's already delicious. It's already nutritious. They grow really well in their native range. Uh, They're relatively easy to grow with few pesticides or fertilizers. Uh, they don't need to be pruned, but they can be pruned if growing in an orchard setting. So they taste great and they grow great. They just don't last very long. So for a plant breeder, that's kind of the golden situation where you just have one issue to tackle. And once you do that, you've got something you can domesticate. You can release to the public and will be accepted. And on top of that, there's a one key element is that people are excited about pawpaws. We've been going all around the country uh, for our fundraising campaign this month, going to pawpaw festivals and farmers markets. And there's a, almost a buzz in the air. I talked to thousands of people and all of them really want to see the pawpaw do well. They want to see it succeed. And I think that's key because you don't see festivals for a lot of these other fruits. You know, there may be a persimmon festival, but it's not attracting 10,000 people in a weekend like the Ohio Pawpaw Festival is. And I think that's going to be key to the success of this project. How much do you think that's attributable to the idea that this is one of very few North American fruits i that most of the you know we have blueberries yeah we have some native blackberries i guess but for the most part everything else is from somewhere else i think it's a lot lot to do with it you know i we saw with supply chain issues throughout covid and, and the years after uh, we saw just what it can do when there's a disruption to our normal supply chain and you can't get things from within your own country but Imagine if we were to have a civil war in an avocado-producing country or a disease took out all the bananas. Having a source of 
affordable and delicious produce produced right here in the United States is going to be really important to food security and also to the economics of the small farmer and the local community. Um, a semina is the large triloba is the largest North American fruit, from what I recall. A tree fruit. Yes, that's correct. Um, and people have been eating them for a very long time, probably longer than we can even document. Uh, and throughout the course of that time, people have likely been also selecting trees that they thought had better flavor and spreading them. And if you look at the map of the range, you can see that along major waterways, there tends to be more pawpaws proliferating. Uh, and that's especially interesting when you look at the northward expansion of the pawpaw. Uh, most fruits and, and nuts can be spread by birds. There's, so that's often moving south as uh, birds migrate in the fall. And that's when things are producing seeds and fruits, uh, which means that a large seeded fruit like the pawpaw isn't really spread by birds, but it's either spread by large ruminant animals or it's spread by people. So when you see these expansions of the pawpaw northwards along waterways against the flow of a river, it's probably pretty strong evidence that people were at some point involved in spreading the pawpaw around and they likely were selecting ones that they thought tasted better or grew well. Yeah, I guess it grew well was an important part because you would have to be free of disease in order to be picked, right? And, you know, so it kind of was the old uh, human role in domestication by picking and propagating what was likely to survive. It really, really cool stuff. And if you look at the germplasm that has been improved, how long have people been improving pawpaws and what are some of the results of that? It's really outstanding. Uh, we It'll be more like punctuated equilibrium, we'll say. There have been enthusiasts throughout the years that have collected superior wild germplasm, made a few crosses or done some selection in uh, mass selection in the orchards, and they've made a lot of progress doing it that way. Although the history of pawpaw breeding is riddled with people starting up and not being able to continue the project, and then other people finding the orchards sometimes decades later and then continuing on the work. Uh, but a wild pawpaw can be small, can be very seedy, and sometimes can have bitter, off flavors or lingering aftertastes. Whereas our modern cultivars now, even though they're only a few generations away from the wild, are much larger. Like I said, the size of a mango or even sometimes exceeding a pound, a pound and a half. They have a better seed to flesh ratio. It's a lot more flesh, a lot fewer seeds, and they taste sweet, have nice firm texture and have that mango, banana taste, sometimes with hints of caramel or vanilla. Yeah, really cool. And uh, the pollination of pawpaws has some interesting facets. Could you talk about that sure. a little bit? So pawpaws, uh, like a lot of plants actually, are not pollinated by bees. They're pollinated by flies, flying ants, and beetles. And as a result, their pawpaw, or their flowers are a dark maroon red, sort of reminiscent of meat or other carrion that would be attracting such pollinators. Uh, and they emit a slight odor that would attract those pollinators as well. Um, but it's, it's quite an effective system in the Northeast. Yeah, tearing a page out of the Amorphophallus titanum. <laughs> uh, the aeroids, yeah. Well, this is all really cool stuff. So when you look at the um, number of cultivars that are available. And I don't know if they're, I guess they are cultivars technically, but there's a lot of varieties that are available. And so what do we have for say the homeowner or someone who was interested in planting a tree or maybe grafting a tree? What is out there and where do you get it? So there are over a hundred named varieties of pawpaws, uh, but if we're looking at commonly cultivated varieties that have actually been selected, there's probably about 30 or 40 
ones that are really in circulation, when maybe about five to 10 that are at the top. Some of the most popular ones are the selections from Neil Peterson in West Virginia. He was uh, he had discovered an old breeding orchard from a, a, a previous pawpaw enthusiast and gone through that and was able to find some specimens that made excellent fruit quality. And those are all named after rivers throughout Appalachia. So you'll see things like Susquehanna, Shenandoah, Rappahannock, uh, Wabash. Those are all excellent cultivars. He's also You've also got cultivars coming out of uh, Kentucky State University, uh, and they've made excellent progress too. They did a very large collection uh, 25 to 30 years ago to bring a bunch of pawpaws to their research orchard, and they were able to sift through that material and start to make some crosses to make the next generation. Other than that, most of the pawpaws yeah. have been released from people who have found great trees in the wild or happened to have made crosses by planting trees next to each other. But in terms of organized breeding and cultivar development, I think there's still a lot of opportunities for advancement. I think there is too, because the stuff that is only a few generations from the woods is actually really good in terms of its adaptability. And from what I understand, the product quality, um, I, you know, again, I, I've planted them here in Florida. So I've, I've done a lot of grafting by a lot of budwood. I have tons of pawpaws growing here as rootstocks, but I have never had a good fruit produced. And the big part for me, I think when you start getting like we are pushing the southern edge of, edge of the native range, which really kind of ends at the Florida, Georgia boundary. But um, it doesn't seem like the trees establish very easily that once you remove them from a pot and try to move them, they don't survive transplantation well. But then they also obviously, I, I believe, are not are objecting to our sandy soil. They also have maybe a very narrow range of water requirement that too wet, no good, too dry, no good. And when you're growing them in sand, it's really a razor's edge. Yeah, to water. Kevin, I think you might be experiencing a little bit too hot of conditions, but also I'm not sure what your chill hours are down there. Uh, these are, these are species adapted for life in zones five through eight. And you can see people growing them as far North as Vermont or even near Ontario, Canada. Uh, so I think you're probably at the Southern edge there. Uh, and that being said, I don't feel too bad for you because you get to grow a lot of cool fruits that I am envious of. <laughs> so I'm glad pawpaws will perform well north of you for those people who can't grow all the cool stuff you get to. Well, I, I'm kind of in the in the in the doom zone because we still get one or two really heavy duty freezes every year, and so it's just enough to kill anything that's really fun. Uh, we can have some cold tolerant citrus. Um, where I'm at, I'm on the edge of eight B nine A. And right on the razor's edge, so it goes actually goes through my through my house. So in the front, I can grow stuff. It's a little bit cold tolerant. In the back, I can't. Um, it, it's a eight B nine A, and so it's kind of on the edge of pawpaw. We have some asimina um, uh, oblongata and parvifolia, and other ones here that flower all the time. But those are you know these small stature uh, uh, bushes and shrubs. And I always had the idea that maybe I could graft onto those. And I have a friend who did it successfully, but I never knew what happened to it. So going forward, that may be another approach is to use some of the native stuff that's soil adapted and give it a new top. So I don't know, does that seem like a good idea or something so crazy? So Neil Peterson, actually, a lot of what he's doing is interspecies hybridization, where he's trying to get some of that heat tolerance or maybe the smaller stature or the showier flowers from those other species into Triloba. And I've seen some of those hybrids and ah. they might perform well down there. 
See, that's a really cool idea that I didn't think of because I could never get a triloba to flower. So it never crossed my mind to do that. But we have lots of the other ones. And maybe it's a question of pollen viability. I don't know how long the pollen stays viable in pawpaw, but um, maybe I can get some pollen from Neil or something one of these days. How long do you know how long it stays viable? As long as you keep it frozen and dry, it stays long for uh, it stays good for, I think, about a month. Okay. All right. Well, I can do that. Yeah. Well, that's one of these things we'll have to experiment with because I think it's such a cool fruit. And down here where I'm at, we we uh, we do get some chill. We probably would get in, we get about 400 chill hours, um, maybe less in the days of climate change. But we still are getting pretty good chill, and we're learning a lot about chill hours in different species that matter and don't matter. Like apple. Well, uh, with peaches, it matters. It's real strict. With apples. It doesn't matter at all. You can grow Spokane beauties down here if you peel off some leaves. Don't let it go fully dormant. So there's a lot of fun things that we're learning about uh, dormancy and, and chill requirement. And so, you know, maybe there's some more nuance to it. I just want to grow cool fruits and at the, for the farmer's market. But I also have an obsession with I would like to figure out what works here so that we could give small farms something really exciting to grow that they could have for local consumers. Because I think connecting people with cool fruit they can't buy in the store gives them some other uh, excitement about healthy alternatives. So that's my mission. And that's what we're all about too, Kevin. It's about uh, giving small farmers tools to remain economically viable and giving consumers access to local, sustainable, and delicious fruit that's not shipped across the world. Well, this is really cool. So we're going to take a break here. And when we get back on the other side of the break, we'll talk with Adam D'Angelo about Project Pawpaw and what's happening in terms of modern molecular breeding and some of the other issues that are being done to advance the quality of the pawpaw. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. We're speaking with Adam D'Angelo. He's the director and employee of Project Pawpaw, which is uh, seeking to come up with modern techniques to improve this important crop. And, and I say important crop because I think it's got amazing potential. But like any tree crop, it takes time to improve it. And where some efforts have been done, the uh, best of times are still ahead. And I think things like Project Pawpaw will only accelerate that. So what is happening right now with respect to genetic improvement? I mean, are there multiple breeding programs around the country or different people who've taken this on? Where do we stand? So right now we've got a few big players, but there's some big opportunities as well. You've got Kentucky State University. They have a crop improvement and research program there. Uh, So they're generating crosses and new material. Uh, And then you also have other universities like Ohio State who are working on some of the genetic resources, like sequencing the genome uh, and doing some transcriptome analyses as well as post-harvest storage. But a bulk of the breeding now and throughout the history of the pawpaw has been done by hobbyists uh, with or without training 
people putting in an acre or two of trees, making some exploratory crosses, and growing out population sizes that may not be enough to really capture the recombination that you're hoping to see. Uh, and that's where we're coming in. This is Project Pawpaw. We're crowdfunded research and breeding for Pawpaw. I have uh, my degree in plant breeding and plant genetics. And what we're doing is we're fundraising to create a plant a large breeding orchard. Uh, with thousands of trees. That way we can start to use some of our modern tools to really make the progress that other people have not been able to make. Yeah, really cool. So are you going to be doing this in uh, Wisconsin? Like, where is this actually happening? So right now, one of the top contenders for the orchard site is in southern New Jersey, actually, which is a, a nice location for a number of reasons. It's flat and consistent soil, which, as you know, is important for plant breeding. So you can know that the differences you're seeing are due to the genetics of the tree and not the environment. Uh, additionally, it's zone seven, so it's right in the center of the pawpaw's uh, hardiness range, which allows us to really take advantage of a lot of material for our crossing schemes. And most importantly, it's isolated from wild populations. So there really is not a large wild population of pawpaw in that area of southern New Jersey, which means that we'll be able to keep a clean orchard uh, meaning no diseases or things will be transmitted into our orchard so that when we do decide to send scion wood out into the world, uh, we know it won't be harboring any pests or diseases. So you mentioned all these um, efforts like sequencing a genome and um, other things like this, but what are the current, what's the current state of molecular resources for pawpaw improvement? So currently the genome is not sequenced. Um, although that being said, that's not as big of a challenge as it used to be. I solicited a few quotes two years ago for de novo sequencing and assembly of a pawpaw genome. And even with annotation, the cost came out to $9,300. And I can't <laughs> imagine, I imagine it's gotten even cheaper since then. Uh, so we're, we're kind of in the golden age of all of this. That being said, uh, the university effort to sequence, uh, the grant just was awarded in 2022. So I think they've got a few years before they release anything publicly. And I just saw a uh, transcriptome of the pawpaw was released, I think last year. So there's stuff out there, but there really aren't people using uh, detailed genomes or, or GBS or anything. Uh, the bulk of molecular efforts has been done by KSU right now using SSR markers, which are trusty and reliable, but uh, really don't give you the resolution that you're going to need to employ some of these newer techniques. Yeah, really limited. But if you want to do a, a genome for 9300 bucks or 9600 bucks or less, I could rattle a cup on an off-ramp and I bet we could put it together in a couple of days. Because when we did strawberry, we did the diploid strawberry, it was, you know, 243 megabases back in the late, uh, you know, 20 teens and, or no, no, 20 aughts going into 20 teens. It was the 12th plant genome sequenced. And we did an entire de novo assembly without a physical map. We did it all based on genetics and genetic markers because it was small enough. And, uh, and that was probably about $240,000 back then. And a lot of it was donated resources from, uh, Roche and some of the other companies. So th that's awesome that it's that cheap. If you want to do it, I bet we could find enough people to put throw money in a hat to do it if you wanted to do a separate effort from what's being done at Ohio State. I mean, it's totally doable. Yeah, I, I think that's the beauty of all of this is it's all totally doable. GBS costs are plummeting right now. Uh, and I think the if we were to do some studies and find major genes, uh, just the genotyping cost with CASP markers means that we could be screening large populations at a fraction of the cost ever before. Uh, and, you know, com computing resources are cheaper. So that's another reason why this is sort of 
a perfect time to be launching a project like this because not only do we have a really enthusiastic group of people uh, interested in pawpaws and a resurgence in uh, local food and native fruits, but we also have the technology to support such research. Uh, and I think we could really have a great return on investment uh, by doing some of this work now. now how big is the genome? It's 1,600 megabase pairs, so it's actually Ooh. quite large. <laughs> Forget it. I don't want to do it now. <laughs> 1,600 megabase. Okay. What about other efforts that are being done right now with, you mentioned GWAS and other marker-assisted breeding. Is anybody currently working on that? So to my knowledge, no one's doing marker-assisted breeding or GWAS, genomic selection, anything like that in pawpaws. Uh, the most they're doing is looking at the structure of populations in the wild. I think they might be using some tools for that, but in terms of an organized breeding program, we're not seeing that technique being used right now. And if you do think about the diversity that's out there in the, the wild, how well is that represented in the current germplasm? Or is the current slate of varieties really just a very narrow section of that that has kind of been inbred within itself? I think we're seeing uh, sort of a bunching up. So a lot of Neil Peterson's stuff came from the same origins. Kentucky State did a really great job of getting germplasm from all over the country in their initial collection. So that's probably pretty diverse material, although I'm not sure how many generations of uh, crossing they've had in that. So it still might be rather narrow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So um, in terms of there is diversity available to bring in different genes that may be important for productivity, especially post-harvest quality, because you mentioned that they don't last very long. Are there certain varieties out there which maybe have lousy fruit traits in other ways, but maybe last longer? That's the main focus of our, of our work, Kevin. We're trying to make pawpaws that last a little bit longer. Uh, and in doing that, we've had to develop methods to look at shelf life and, and measure different key attributes of shelf life. So our preliminary research was based on pawpaw shelf life evaluations, and we were uh, seeing if there's differences in cultivars. It's hard to say right now uh, because those are preliminary studies, but it's likely that there's going to be differences between cultivars and shelf life. Uh, and that's due to things like skin thickness, flesh firmness, uh, and polyphenol oxidase activity. That's what makes the pawpaws turn brown when they get overripe. Yeah, the other big drawback of pawpaws, or at least the negative trait that I sometimes hear about, is anonisin. And you know, they recommend you don't uh, eat pawpaws if you're pregnant, that kind of thing. And is there anybody who studied the diversity of this neurotoxin as it occurs in the wild populations? Yeah, so a 1,000-foot view of that issue. Ananasis acetogenins, uh, that's the class of compounds found in anona trees, that's pawpaws, soursop, cherry moya, uh, and custard apple. There are classic compounds that do have some neurotoxicity. Uh, and the evidence that people are sort of citing when they're talking about pawpaws is really coming from papers that were out of Guadalupe, where people were drinking soursop leaf tea daily uh, for very long periods of time, and were then seeing a slightly higher rate of atypical Parkinsonism. Uh, of course, that was a study performed with small sample sizes, self-reported data, uh, a population structure of the people that might just be more prone to Parkinsonism. Uh, so <laughs> there's a lot of uh, things that make people wary of this. That being said, people have been eating pawpaws in the United States for longer than we can even record, uh, and, and it's been an important food source. But there has been some work done by Kentucky State 
and looking at the varieties of pawpaws and pseudogenin content, and you can see that there is differences between the cultivars. However, one of our first projects is developing a spectrophotometric assay for acetogenins, as opposed to the assay that they were using, which is a little bit less accurate and more costly and, and time intensive. And once we have that perfected, we'll be able to do a wide screen of available cultivars and germplasm and start doing some selection for lower acetogenin content. Yeah, it's just one of those things that always comes up, and I totally hear you on the dose makes the poison uh, angle. That you know, people have been eating these things forever, and and uh, there there isn't that high of a level of these compounds, and most of the data come from uh, those studies from Guadalupe, uh, Guadalupe, or, or, or I'm sorry, where was the studies? Where were they? Where were they drinking the tea? Guadalupe. In Guadalupe, and then and then uh, some in vitro stuff, you know, which has lots of limitations. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really hard to say, you know, what what that really translates to. But I know it's a thing that comes up when people are talking about consuming pawpaws. Uh, if you look at all of their plant domestication stories, many, many of them have had to do with removing phytotoxins from the plant. Cassava, apples, nightshades. All of those made plant defense compounds, and it was the act of domestication that reduced those toxic chemicals. Uh, and I think for an undomesticated fruit, I think that's very realistic that we can reduce the levels or even eliminate them in a commercial cultivar. Yeah, because historically, only the people that survived were able to forward another plant generation. <laughs> <laughs> No, we talk about that a lot. I, I love plant domestication stories, and we uh, we talk about them all the time. But this one seems like like I hate to say low hanging fruit, but it seems like pawpaw is really poised for some really fast improvement over the next few years. So, if people wanted to donate to Project Pawpaw, where would they find more information? So, our website projectpawpaw.com. That's Project P A W P A W. Uh, that has a wealth of resources. It's it describes our efforts, our mission, as well as general information about growing, grafting, harvesting, storing fruit. And we also have an online store where you can purchase uh, any merchandise and all the proceeds go directly to fund pawpaw research and breeding. Cool. Well, I'm going to buy some swag um, because I think it's totally cool. I think pawpaws are, have just incredible potential. Everything I've read about them and, and uh, people who've eaten them say that it's the one thing I really got to get my hands on. And uh, I, I would really get excited down the road as you begin to come up with uh, germplasm. I've got space, I've got irrigation, and I would love to just try to see maybe there's some magical thing that can work in Florida that can provide fresh pawpaws to the Wisconsinites when you guys are under snow. So uh, think about it and uh, you know maybe there's some things we could do together in the future. So uh, Adam D'Angelo, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks again for having me, Kevin. It's It's been so great to be on here. And to everybody listening, thank you again for listening to another episode of Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast. Learn about pawpaws. These are really cool trees and really uh, cool fruits that I wish I could grow here in Florida. But you can grow them through many places in North America, and it is one of our native fruits that actually originated here in North America. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. 
C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.